You're on Global Chat Radio, the multicultural voice of Western Australia, and today we are playing the last of our series on the life and legacy of the Italian visionary Dante. And with me again, I have Antonio Casella. Antonio is a well-known Australian novelist and short story writer who was born in Italy, but brought his skills to Australia. So welcome, Antonio. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Now, let us just think for this episode, we've talked about quite a bit of the Divine Comedy. We've talked about the Inferno. We've talked about Purgatory. But today I'd like to talk about Paradiso or Paradise. But we should probably start from the beginning and talk about how Dante and Beatrice first met. Yes, it's a great story, actually, and uh, very famous. Uh, we know this story, by the way, I should, I should start by saying, from Dante's other work, Vita Nuova, when he outlines um, the events. According to those, he met Beatrice possibly in 
in a church, I suppose, when they were both nine years old. Beatrice was a few months younger. But even though that young, he was totally smitten by her, which it lasted, well, into his, uh, his, his old age as well. But their destinies took them in different directions. And Beatrice married a well-known Florentine banker called Simone de Bardi. And uh, while Dante, of course, married Gemma Donati and uh, had several children. So that love, that obsession that he had with Beatrice, you would think that would end, but actually it didn't. It, uh, it continues. And he, Dante's spiritual emotional attachment to, to Beatrice persisted. And then uh, Beatrice died young, at age 24, in fact, but his devotion continued to her. But um, you'd have to wonder, Antonio, how their respective spouses felt about this relationship. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. I, often, I suppose we, we shouldn't put the interpretation of a, in a modern context. Well, I guess the, the main thing was they were very young and she died at 24, even though... But really, his devotion to Dante, I assume that his wife, I'm putting words into her mind, I guess, in this stage, that she considered it to be a spiritual uh, attachment rather than emotional. Although I think emotional, he, Dante himself would say, yes, there's a lot of emotion in it. And nevertheless, she continued to be a spiritual guide and a muse throughout his life. And we must assume that his wife was philosophical about it and thought, this is art. And life is different as life is the children and me being married to him. But Beatrice is art and above all, the spirit that he's seeking. Okay, so she died quite young, uh, as you said, 24. Yes. Um, but they meet again, don't they, in, in the Divine Comedy? Yes. Interestingly enough, it's not in Paradiso. As, as we know, we've outlined before, Dante is accompanied or led, guided by Virgil, the great Latin poet, but he, Virgil, cannot go beyond Inferno. Then she comes in, not so much in Paradiso, but she comes in at the end of Purgatorio. So in the first scene, what happens is it's Canto 30, there's another three more cantos of the Inferno. However, we've actually left Purgatorio, uh, sorry, I correct that. There's only three more cantos left of the Purgatorio, rather. And so we're going to go into Paradiso, uh, but we're not yet going in. We are in the Garden of Eden, what they call the Garden of Eden, where... We know from biblical uh, references that where the, the fall of man through Adam and Eve occurred. So it's a place, an in-between place between Purgatorio and Paradiso there. The landscape of the Garden of Eden is obviously a transition play, play, a landscape. And all of a sudden what Dante sees is a cloud in, in, the, in the distant uh, horizon and a great pageant and a chariot, a chariot rather, drawn by a griffin, arising from golden clouds lit by the rays of the sun. So it's a very grand entrance here. Dante is mesmerised by all this and turns to Virgil, whom he thinks is still there, and asks him, what's this all about? Of course, Virgil has gone. And 
he doesn't know what to do, but then suddenly the, the silence is interrupted by an, somebody calling his name. And, and it goes like this. Dante, perché Virgilio se ne vada non piange ancora, non piange ancora, né che pianger ti convien per altra spada. So Dante is desolate, he cries, but then he hears his name being called. And by the way, this is the first time in the Divina Commedia, possibly the second, I don't remember another one, but certainly one of the few times where Dante's name is mentioned in La Divina Commedia. And Dante himself is actually quite apologetic for this self-reference in his work to his name. He says, Quando mi volsi al suon del mio nome, che di necessità qui si registra. When I, I turned upon hearing my name, recorded here out of necessity... So he's saying, I'm sorry, my name, but um, it's a necessity for me to hear so at first, Beatrice, he knows it's her by the voice, but he's not seeing her because she's clad in this white dress and a veil over her head and, and all the paraphernalia. So, but she actually cuts a very austere and reproachful sort of figure. She says, how did you manage to get here? Because you can see that he's still alive. And uh, then more pointedly, she accuses him of infidelity to her memory. I presume that doesn't mean infidelity in a modern sense or in a usual sense, but rather I think she refers to uh, his years of religious crisis and doubt. After all, he alludes to his spiritual crisis right at the start of uh, the Lumina Commedia when uh, memorably the work starts with Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarrita. I found myself in a dark forest, as I had lost the straight way. Yes, it's, it's Dante, he is talking about losing his way, his spiritual way, and uh, in the middle of his life. So it's not just even Dante, he's talking about, it's about a man's life, or human being. Beatrice proves to be somewhat intransigent in her condemnation of Dante. She scolds him like a mother or a child. In fact, this mother-child theme is illustrated and maintained. Beatrice not only uh, is his muse, but she's also a Madonna figure, mother of the church, therefore mother of all Christians, protective of her children, and, but also very severe when it comes to following the dictates of the Holy Church. So it's the mouthpiece for the church. So Dante plays the child theme very well, uh, and you almost get the sense that he's enjoying this. In the next canto, he gives a, a long account of his confusion occasioned by the death of uh, Beatrice, in which he's lost his way and gave himself to material and sinful pursuits over several years. She says... From the afterlife, I try to guide you, Dante, towards more holy thoughts and deeds, but she paid no heed, so she's still scolding him. Dante accepts that this is so, um, that he's been corrupted, um, but also through the loss of her, he lost his senses. He's truly distraught and remorseful. At this point, Beatrice... Uh, accepts his confession and uncovers her face. And then, lo and behold, 
once he sees her face again, he's overcome and he faints and falls into the river Leith, which is uh, it goes, which runs through. Uh, the uh, Garden of Eden. That seems a little bit melodramatic, Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is rather. But Dante is a bit of an expert at uh, just getting every, every bit of drama out of situations. Throughout the work, we find him expressing alarm, outrage or whatever. And uh, it's not unusual for him to shed tears. And, and as we've seen here, to even faint. It's not the first time he's done it. But there's another reason for his fainting spell, actually. It's part of the story. As he falls, he falls into the river, and so therefore this is a symbolic baptism for Dante, a baptism in which he's being reformed into the true church now once again. So it's a new baptism. Uh, In other words, it's a baptism, therefore a rebirth, and a necessary, and this is important, I think, a necessary purification which allows him to enter paradise now, paradiso. And Antonio, Beatrice's entrance is highly symbolic. Yes, it certainly is, more than one level. The chariot that she rides in, for example, represents the future of the coming Christ. It's all a pageant. Uh, She's greeted by 24 men representing the church's elders. Also, the colours that she wears are highly symbolic. The white for faith, the green cape that she wears is for hope, and the red dress for love. So Beatrice is greeted by her angelic companions with words which echo uh, those used for the arrival of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. So not only symbolic, but also evocative of other parts uh, of uh, the Bible. The Riva Leith itself, which uh, derives from the Christian writing, not from the Christian writing, rather, it's from Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, it's uh, the river of forgetfulness and cleansing, meaning that the true salvation takes place, for, for it to take place rather, one must not just simply regret the sins of the past, but must erase them entirely from one's mind. So, so Antonio, why do you think Dante, in this scene, makes Beatrice into such an austere, judgmental figure? I can only give an interpretation of this. She, we could say that Beatrice is taking multiple roles in this scene. She is Dante's muse, of course, but also his mother, who needs to save him from by uh, bringing him back to the spiritual redemption. On a more general and symbolic level, she's also take, she takes the role of protector of the mother church. And that's, and that's important. The church is, is severe, is seen as severe and all-powerful. And she lays down the rules for our behaviour, as she did in those days anyway. 
Uh, you could also argue that this scene brings out what we would call nowadays, and this is possibly controversial what I'm saying, the feminist spirit in Beatrice. Well, we wouldn't say these days, we would call that feminist. Throughout the work, up to this point, any reference to Beatrice by Dante, she always refers to her as Madonna Mia or Donna Mia, La Donna Mia, which, with the emphasis being that it's his woman. You could then say that here she puts him back in his place, in, in a way. She's not to be taken for granted. Yes, she says, I will love you, but you have to be deserving of my love. And if you stray, you need to deserve my forgiveness. So she plays a, a fairly judgmental role there. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because even though she's only his mistress, she still seems to be very much wanting to be in control of the relationship. And, 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 to, yeah. and that's an interesting situation, yeah. I think. But... She's not, she's not demure, is she? Mm-hmm. She's not, certainly not here. She's not the demure Madonna that, uh, uh, you know, just stands there and, uh, and he uses to, for inspiration. She's a living person. She's a, quite a strong-willed person too here. And, uh, and I, think, I think, as you said, that's her feminist rebellion almost coming out. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I guess if you go back to the, the scriptural Madonna... You know, she is also a very powerful lady in her own right. So. Yes. But yeah. let's, move, let's move on from this particular part of the, the story and talk about where numerology fits into Dante's life. Oh, well, yes, he's, he's certainly got uh, a thing about numbers and numerology, especially numbers like seven, and, but particularly three. The number three is of great significance. In particular, it is considered the, the, um, the perfect number. Hence, you've got the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when you look at it more closely, you see that Purgatorio and Paradiso, both of them have got 33 cantos, two perfect numbers together. I'm not sure why, actually, incidentally, why he used, he has 34 cantos for Purgatorio, probably. Ma- maybe because he wanted 100 all, o- all up. Oh, well, I hadn't thought of that. Well, that's very good thinking, yeah. And, of course, there's more to say about uh, Inferno than the other two places. Then, again, going on the threes there, you've got Beatrice, and this is interesting, she appears in Canto 30 of Purgatorio, and then she leaves the stage in Canto 33 of Paradiso. Sorry, in both cases it's 30. In Canto 30 of Paradiso, she leaves the stage. As we get to Canto 31, we're gazing at the top of the hill once again, and there are three, the three circles of the upper paradise, the top paradise. Again, you've got the number three, and this is called Empyrean, by the way. So, yes, numerology plays a big part in the Divine Comedy, you'd have to say. We've now caught up on the backstory 
and we are at the top of the hill about to go into Paradiso. Yes, Tim, that, that's correct. Yeah, we, we've entered Paradiso and Dante starts off with an invocation to Apollo and the Muses asking them for guidance in his divine task. Interesting that Dante here, once again, mingles um, Greek mythology with Christian theology. I often wonder why Dante was able to get away or how he was able to get away with this at a time when the power of the church was supreme and its theology was uh, strict and unforgiving. That's food for thought there. He and Beatrice then so ascend to the earthly paradise. Beatrice from the earthly paradise into paradise itself. Beatrice outlines the structure of the universe and the stars which appear, which appear as bodies of pure light. Now she, she's not just a spiritual guide, but she shows great knowledge of the stars and constellation as it was understood in medieval times. Of course, this is Dante himself outlining his views regarding such sciences as cosmology and religion. More and more in Paradiso, so therefore, Beatrice serves as a mouthpiece, really, for Dante's conception of the world and the role of us humans in it. She explains the story of creation and gets into subjects as disparate as the theory of sin and free will, which is more a philosophy, philosophical discussion. She also continues to quiz Dante as they climb their way up to the circles of higher heaven and doesn't hesitate to correct him if he gets it wrong. In Canto II, for instance, Dante gives an interpretation of the spots on the surface of the moon, which he attributes to a rarity of substance. And she butts in, she quickly comes in and says, no, that's not right, it's the light of God, the light as it comes through different parts of the moon. And light, light by the way, plays a, a dominant role in Paradiso. Uh, as you would expect it. Uh, the higher they go, the more rarefied and pure the light becomes. No longer the light that we humans know, but, as he puts it, pura luce, luce intellettuale piena d'amore, amor di vero ben pien di letizia, letizia che trascende ogni dolzone. Pure light, light intellectual, full charged with love. Love of true goodness charged with gladness. Gladness which transcends every sweetness. Yes, so uh, it's uh, rarefied. In Canto, so we, hence we get, to, uh, after many journeys, we get to Canto 31 and we are in the Empyrean, the last three circles of heaven, and again the three Cantos of Paradise, that is the supreme region. This is in the form of the rose, and it's where God and uh, Madonna uh, reside. So on seeing this totally once again, here is uh, dramatic Dante, or over, over melodramatic perhaps, totally overwhelmed, he turns to question Beatrice, but in a repetition of a previous scene at the end of Purgatorio, she's done a disappearing act. So her uh, place is taken by St. Bernard. He will guide her through uh, the last three cantos and the last three circles of... Uh, guide him, rather, through the last three circles, circles of Paradiso. But before that happens, 
San Bernard points to her and uh, to him and says, "Look over there. That's where Beatrice is gone. She's gone to the upper heaven, and you'll see another one of those great uh, scenes where Beatrice. But you don't see her. You see this crown of light, and that's Beatrice in there. And then he launches into the last of his poetic effusions uh, towards her." And we're going to read this one stanza by stanza in both languages with Tim, if you, Tim, if you agree with me, because it's a beautiful piece. O donna in cui la mia speranza vige e che soffristi per la mia salute in inferno lasciar le tue vestige. O lady in whom my hope is strong and who for my salvation endured to leave the traces of your feet in hell. Di tante cose quante io ho vedute, del tuo potere e della tua bontade, riconosco la grazia e la virtute. I recognize the virtue and the grace of all the many things which I have seen as coming from your power and kindliness. Tu mai diservo tratto e libertate per tutte quelle vie, per tutti i modi che di ciò fare avrei la protestate from slavery to freedom you have drawn me in every way and over every path within your power to achieve that end la tua magnificenza in me custodi sì che l'anima mia che fatta e sana piacente a te dal corpo si disnodi preserve in me the fruit of your munificence that Thus my soul, restored to health by thee, may, when it leaves my body, please be still. Here we've got, uh, she's now become not only just a saviour and hope, but also she's no longer a woman, but a Madonna uh, figure herself. Nor do Dante's final words to Beatrice sound like an adieu to a loved one but more like a prayer to a saint or even to a god. So, you know, she's no longer his woman, but she is a saint. And all that remains in Dante is the wish for his body to be separated from his soul one day when he dies and for the soul to go and rejoin his beloved one in Paradiso. So that is the end of the story of Dante and Beatrice. Antonia, thank you for your time over the last few weeks recounting to us parts of the Divine Comedy and perhaps explaining it to many of us who are not medieval scholars, I guess. So thank you once again. Oh, thank you. It's been, it's been great and a delight to do this program. Thank you, Tim.
was to be the night.